We're in Deuteronomy 29. We're in the covenant renewal section. This is going to be... How many of you are married or have been married? How many of you have ever... Okay, I've done a lot of weddings. Always on the other side. Never on the standing side. Um, how many of you have done vow renewals? Anybody ever done that before? Yeah. So we're about to see Israel's vow renewal covenant ceremony. So Israel got married to God. Anybody know where, where God married Israel? Pop quiz if you were here three and a half years ago. Anybody remember where God married them? Like married, he entered into a covenant marriage with Israel? Seriously? Nobody? I'm going to put you on the spot. Come on, guys. There was a mountain involved. There were tablets involved. Charlton Heston was there. Come on, people. You're making me feel like a failure as your teacher. The Ten Commandments, the Exodus, Mount Sinai. Hello. <laughs> Mount Sinai is where Israel and God got married. The prophets say it. It's not even a metaphor that I'm making up. The prophets say that is where God married Israel. Hosea flat out says it. Uses it as a whole metaphor of his book. It was, uh, it was their wedding. He took them into the wilderness. That's why the desert time is described as God's honeymoon with Israel. You read this stuff, I'm, read it later in the prophets. You'll, all of this is the foundation that we're in. So they got married at Mount Sinai. Soon as the, the, before the ink had dried on the marriage certificate, Israel cheated on them. Immediately committed adultery. That sounds like today. Yeah, very familiar. Immediately committed adultery. To the point where God said, I'm, I'm going to divorce you. And Moses begged and pleaded, please, please, please do not. And so God relented that time. And he said, okay, I'll stick in this marriage. But this generation that cheated on me is dead. They're going to die in the wilderness. Their kids are going to be the one whom this spousal relationship continues. And that spouse relationship would continue all the way until the time of Jeremiah. When it would become too great, the, the, the adultery. And then God finally would say, I am now divorcing you. Here is your certificate of divorce. You're out. And he cast them out into the land. And then God would do something scandalous. Even in Old Testament standards, later he would actually take them back. And that was something that the law, as we saw in Deuteronomy earlier, the law forbidded someone who had divorced their wife from ever remarrying them again. But yet that's exactly what God did to Israel, breaking all cultural custom and even Torah uh, precedent in order to renew his love for Israel after having divorced them. It's a fascinating way to read the Old Testament. Read the, through the lens of, a, of a, dis, uh, a broken marriage. A marriage where one spouse is faithful and the other spouse continues over and over and over to disobey, to not disobey, to, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, to, to commit adultery, to cheat. That is the relationship between Israel and God in the Old Testament. Right now, this is the beginning of that relationship, and Israel, the new generation, they weren't at the first covenant ceremony, or if they were, they were little kids. Because this is 40 years after. And so what Moses is going to do now, his last deed before he dies, is he's going to do the vow renewal, where they are taking on the covenant uh, marriage stipulations now. Everything that's been, to, uh, we've looked at this whole year, all the stipulations, all of the requirements, all of the covenant promises, the last three weeks we've looked at the covenant curses for disobedience, all these things, that's the premarital counseling. <laughs> now we're going to have the ceremony. You won't need an analogy to think of it that way. And so we get to verse 29, and a recap, verse 20, chapter 29, verse 1, rather, 
recaps everything that's come before. It says, these are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. So these are the two mountain uh, wedding locales. Mount Sinai, Mount, Mount uh, Horeb in Sinai Peninsula, uh, somewhere in modern Saudi Arabia. People still take you down to the one on the Sinai Peninsula, but it's just that it doesn't fit with what the Bible describes it as. Um, but wherever Mount Sinai is, whether Arabia, whether in the Sinai Peninsula, wherever it is, that was where God married Israel. Then he's going to renew the vows now on Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is where they are right now, and that's in modern-day Jordan, right across the river. It's at the tip of the Dead Sea. You can stand on Mount Nebo, and you can look down, and there's the Dead Sea. There's the Jordan River. There's Jericho. Up the mountains ahead is Jerusalem. I mean, you can see all this stuff there. So this is where the covenant renewal is taking place. And so verse 2, Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, now this is corporate. Remember, these kids, these, these people now were not even alive when this happened, many of them. But yet, listen to how Moses talks to them as if they're one, the corporate identity of the people, even though individually they weren't there at the time. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. No, they haven't, Moses. Most of them haven't seen them. Most of them aren't old enough to remember. So what's he doing? Moses is speaking to Israel as an entity, as a, as an, as a corporate person, as a party. So corporately, they are all in on this, even though individually they were not there yet. So there's continuity between the Israel that came out of Egypt and the Israel that's going to go into the promised land, even though at the generational level, they're different. So that's an important point in biblical theology. The court, it's called corporate solidarity. He's speaking to the whole, but using an individual description. Your eyes, your ears, you were there. And even though they physically weren't, most of them anyway. But he goes on to say even more rhetorically powerful now. He says, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. So this is another now. He's being very rhetorical. He's somewhat sarcastic because all throughout the book, God has exhorted them to have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand. These verbs are used throughout the past three years we've been studying this section of the Torah. And so it's not Moses is being this is a characteristic of Hebrew uh, language where it uses a figure of speech deferentially almost or, or kind of with a wink like, yeah. Apparently, God hasn't given you eyes to see or ears to hear, implying, no, God has, and they should, and that's what they're getting a chance to do right now. So he's in preacher mode. He's in rhetoric mode. Uh, check the commentaries if you want an actual breakdown of the Hebrew phrasing of this. But it's not saying categorically, the reason you you're disobedient is because God has made you be disobedient. This is a figure of Hebrew speech. It's a figure of speech when, you know, when we say, God will it creek don't rise or you know oh god only you know it's it's very like if you're muslim you say inshallah you know the will of god and it's kind of just a cover off for everything but this goes into the mindset of the hebrew people that god is sovereign over everything and even people's disobedience is taken into account in his plan but if you tease this out to try to build a theology around this one verse you're going to run at odds with every other section of the torah because the whole point of this passage is for the people to have eyes to see 
ears to hear, minds to understand. It's the same thing he'll tell Jeremiah later when he sends, I'm going to send you to a people, preach, turn, get them to turn from their ways, teach them. But I'm going to make them so they don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand. It's a, it's a way of describing the disobedience of free human beings in a world that is sovereignly under God's control. And how that teases out into our philosophy and our theology, debate it all you want, but just later. Because the point of this is rhetorical, not philosophical. And he's urging the people. He's almost doing reverse psychology. If you've ever had kids, oh, well, you must not be a big boy if you don't want to get on this ride. I guess, you're, you know, it's like he's, he's saying the opposite of what he knows because he wants them to do the other thing. So read over that. Think of it on your own, but we've got to keep going. He said, uh, during the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread, drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. They survived fully clothed with their equipment intact without bread or wine. The two staples of culture in the ancient world. And God's saying, yeah, you didn't have those things. You were provided for by me directly. I made sure that you had all you needed. When you reached this place, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us. But we defeated them. We took their land, we gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. This was in Numbers, if you remember, um, two years ago, a year ago. Now, verse 9, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. Verse 10, all you who are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel... Together with your children, your wives, and the immigrants living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with you on oath. To confirm you this day as his people. That he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today, meaning future generations. Do you hear the language? Do you hear the dearly beloved language throughout all of this? We are standing here today. This day I'm making a covenant. You who are here today. It's very official. This is not just an off-the-cuff sermon. This is their covenant renewal ceremony. And he's also preaching to them at the same time. There's an interesting point, and I've mentioned that Chris Wright in his Deuteronomy commentary, which you all should own if you ever want a commentary on Deuteronomy, best thing in print. Uh, just may, I, I Instagram passages from it all the time if you follow me online. But uh, one of the quotes he said I love, he's talking about this section that we just read. And he says, um, no caste system in Israel excludes the lowest social groups from participation in the covenant. The woodchopper is no less a member of the covenant community than the king. No matter who stands before whom in daily life, all find themselves standing in the presence of the Lord, a radically leveling position. I love that insight on this passage because Moses says everybody from the least to the greatest, officials, the, the elders, men, then the groups who would typically be excluded from official matters, the taft. The women, the, the children, the helpless, the ones who we, that were tapped, we looked at back in numbers, 
um, the tap, the, the elderly. And then he says, and the immigrant workers, the sojourners, the alien, however your translation puts it, the ones who are coming here who are chopping your wood and drawing your water. Those are menial tasks, we could say, who are cutting your grass and picking your fruit. It's, just, it's that kind of thing. The work that Israelites are, well, that's the, that's the we're going to hire out that work. It, them too, included in the covenant people. Everybody all included in God's idea of who is going to be who and what they're going to be taking on today. And so it's this radically inclusive uh, image, but in a sense that elevates everybody to the status of I should say not elevates, that lowers everybody to the same status when they're standing before God. That's the, the phrase in Christianity is the grounded level at the foot of the cross. Right? Like everybody stands on the same footing from king to servant. And so even in Deuteronomy, we see that going on. And then he says, verse 19, uh, everybody's standing here, or excuse me, verse 8, 16. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. He's talking about Moab and Edom. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. He uses the imagery of a plant, one of the roots that's producing poison, and it will just destroy the whole plant. Make the whole plant decay. And that's the image that God's giving Israel corporately is, listen, make sure that, yeah, we're a nation, but we're not a nation that's, an, you know, no man is an island. We're in this together. Make sure the number one temptation you're going to face is assimilation into Canaanite fertility practices. That is the temptation Israel is going to face. That is the temptation Israel is going to fail consistently throughout their history. I think there's only two kings in all of Israel's history after David who don't allow idolatry. I think there's only two of them. If I remember right, Hezekiah and Josiah are the only two that actually stamp out idolatry. Even Solomon. Solomon brings it into the kingdom. That marks the downfall of Israel. Is Solomon allowing idolatry to come in with all of the foreign wives that he takes. And so Moses is warning them about the number one temptation that they will face. And so he says, verse 19, when such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses in this book will fall upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. This is a fascinating passage because now it's walking that line between corporate solidarity and individual responsibility. And what it's saying is, if there's an individual among you who says, yeah, 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 I've made this covenant. I've taken the oath. I'm, I'm part of the blessing. I'm the chosen people. I'm, you know, the Israelite of Israelites. So I can go ahead and do what I want. And that's literally what he says. I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. God's saying, I'm going to know who that person is. I'm going to single that person out, and I will destroy them. It's a very sobering, very sobering passage. And it's because it's something that's done in secret. It's something that only God would know. We looked last chapter at these curses and how they worked. They were the things that kings or law courts couldn't necessarily prosecute. And so what God is saying and what Moses is telling the people is don't think just because we as a people 
are one nation under God, that you as an individual can do what you want and go your own way. Because the nation's going to think that. In the days of Jeremiah, they're going to actually put Jeremiah in prison for basically saying, uh, hey guys, you need to live right. And the people are saying, no, there's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. In other words, we're doing the sacrifices. We're God's people. The temple's still standing. We're good. And then they're going to go and worship in secret. Jeremiah and Ezekiel will, will vehemently rebuke such just civil religion and say, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter. What your, your heart is what God sees. And that's what he's judging. And our heart is rotten to the core. And God is going to judge us for it. We've got to return. We've got to turn back to the covenant. Time and time again, that's the message of almost every prophet that you're going to read from this moment forward in the Bible. And Israel will not will continue to turn astray. So it goes on. Um, he says, verse 21, the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Verse 22, your children who follow you. Oh, oh wait, back up. Verse 20 makes people shake their head. Uh, as Christians, and we read the Bible, of course, and we read like forgiveness. God's all about forgiveness. God's all about forgiveness. And then wait a minute. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. Woo. I thought God forgives everything. And even Jesus said blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that is unforgivable. So what's going on here? Who is the him that it's talking about? The one in the previous sentence. The Lord will never be willing to forgive the one who is saying, I will be safe even though I persist in my own way. God... Let me, let me be clear on this. There are some things God cannot do. The Bible has never said God can do everything. There are some things God himself says he cannot do. God can't cease to exist. right? God can't create a rock so big that even he can't lift it. All of these philosophical dilemmas that people like to come up with. God, the Bible never says God can do everything. What it says is God can do everything that is able to be done. And one of the things that God cannot do is forgive someone who is unwilling to repent. God does not strong arm somebody into the kingdom. And repentance, any sin can be forgiven that is repented of. But the ones that cannot be forgiven are the sins that are not repented of. That's why when Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Why? Who's the thing that does the forgiving? The Holy Spirit. And so if someone is, is looking, staring at the Holy Spirit's work in their midst and saying, that's from the devil, I have nothing to do with it. It's like they're pushing the life preserver away. You, if you're a lifeguard and you throw a preserver to somebody, it won't save them unless they actually grab it. They, there has to be an acknowledgement, oh, I'm being saved, cool, I accept this. <laughs> like I'm not, if somebody's fighting it and pushing it away, hey, they're going to die. And it's not the fault of the person throwing the life preserve. And so with, with sin and repentance, that's one of the things to keep in mind. Because sometimes we forget it. We pull a verse here, a verse there, and don't realize what repentance and forgiveness actually are. But forgiveness is acknowledging someone's contrition, their repentance, and extending the forgiveness. Now, be always, we, you know, people talk about, uh, well, just, just forgive and forget, forgive and forget, or, or just forgive a person and move on. And, yeah, that should be our attitude. Because God, like the prodigal son parable, he's always standing on the porch looking at the horizon, waiting. But notice the father in the prodigal son parable didn't go out until he saw the son coming back. He didn't go leave and go into the pigsty and actually drag the son back. There has to be a step of repentance. There has to be a step of repentance. If there's not repentance, there's not forgiveness. 
So when people say, oh, well, this person did something to me in life a long time ago, and we never reconciled, and, but I forgave them. Not really. You offered forgiveness, and you don't hold any more malice in your heart towards them, but they are not in a state of being forgiven if they have not reconciled or at least shown some contrition. And that's something that we need to carefully understand when we talk about forgiveness because that's what it means. And we kind of, you know, make it mean, well, I just don't wish them bad anymore. And that's a great thing, but that's not forgiveness or reconciliation. And when it comes to salvation, when it comes to God and his forgiveness, it's, it's, it's not just, oh, boys will be boys. <laughs> They're okay. No, 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 no. There has to be some type of... That doesn't mean I have to, you know... Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been X many days before my confession. You know, there's no magic words or no formulas. But there has to be a broken heart, a contrite spirit. There has to be an acknowledgement of I have sinned. And a crying out to God in whatever avenue or arena or ability. That is then when forgiveness comes in like grace and rescues and redeems and transforms. But the person who's saying this, oh, I've already said, I've already said the prayer. I'm good. I can live my own way. They have no hope of salvation. And, and preachers who say that they do are doing a disservice to the souls of people who are under their care. You have no hope of salvation if you are flagrantly living in sin and saying, but it's cool, I said the sinner's prayer. I, I, I was baptized five times, if you're Baptist. Um, you know, or I was confirmed in my Methodist youth group, whatever. Any of the traditions that we all are interdenominational here, they're all good, we're all family. But families do silly things sometimes, and that's one of the things that families do is, is to promote the idea, as long as you said a prayer at some point and meant it, you're good. It just could not be further from biblical, biblical faith. And if you see a preacher preaching that, lovingly challenge them on it, first maybe in private, um, but, but because it really is a pernicious false teaching that endangers people because it gives them the idea, yes, I can live in flagrant sin, but I said words a time ago and I'm okay. God, God never, never honors that. He looks at the heart. Um, let's finish up this section. Verse 22, your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. That's Genesis 19, for those of you that were here back then. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? Now this is where the structure of Deuteronomy is helpful to keep in mind because we're at a bookend section. The way Deuteronomy is sectioned, there's like an outer frame, so chapters 1 and then the end chapters, and then there's like an inner frame, which is the first, uh, oh, probably chapters 4 through 11, uh, and then where we are right now. And then there's that inner block of material, which are all the stipulations. Well, if you think back to that first around chapter 4 or so, um, they were, chapter 4, or verse 6 specifically, it said it was promising Israel the future and, and why God was doing this. And all the nations will look and will see how blessed you are and all the nations will be drawn to me if you keep my covenant. And that was, that was what God told Israel. This is why we're making this covenant. Remember, all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, this is all being done for the sake of the nations. 
Genesis 12, in your offspring, in your seed, in your, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is part of the macro plan of God. So God saying early in Deuteronomy, he was saying, you're going to be, you're going to be in the national spotlight. What I'm doing through you is going to echo throughout history because it's never been done before. A rabble of slaves coming out of a nation, overthrowing that nation, entering into their own land, overthrowing powerful nations there, and, and being the people of God where the God of the universe actually lives and dwells in their midst while also being the God of the entire universe. Nothing like that's ever happened. So you're going to be in the national stage, and you're going to be at the, the crossroads of the world, which is where Israel is. And... All of this is happening for God's glory. Now we're coming to the bookend, to the curses and oaths section, and God's saying, that's still the case, but if you go away from me, if you reject me, all those nations who would have, who should have come and looked to you and seen the relationship that we have and want themselves to enter into this relationship with me, instead they're going to look and they're going to see this desolate, destroyed waste, and they're going to go, Why? what happened here? Why did these people do? That's what he says the nations are going to say. So it's a rhetorical picking up of a point made all the way back before the stipulations. We probably read it about March, if you were here, around March or so. Uh, he goes on to say, why, why, why is this happening, the nations? Last, verse 25, the answer will be, it's because the people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they didn't know. Gods he had not given them. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. And that phrase, as it is now, could either be a later edition, like after the exile, by somebody compiling Deuteronomy, kind of editing it. Or that could be Moses putting that into the voice of future observers, which I think is more likely. And he's presenting a future scenario where Israel's exiled from the land, and it's for a long time. Because that's pretty much what's going to happen for Israel. But so this is the situation that he's painting is all of this is happening for the benefit of the nations looking and seeing. So Israel, Israel stands on a precipice. And if they walk in the way of the Lord, there's worldwide blessing. If they turn away and go the way of the world, then they will experience the curse that the world is already under. And so it's this very precarious position that God is putting Israel in. So when you talk about the chosen people, chosen for what? A very big responsibility. Ultimately, they're chosen to reflect God to the world and eventually to bring forth the one who is the image of God, even more so than anybody else, which is Yahweh himself in the flesh, Jesus. So it's a very high calling, but this is what they're called for. Now, all these questions, okay, Lord, how's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? What about the innocent people who suffer because of what the rest of the country does? You know, people suffering in those sieges and famines that we saw last week. Uh, what about the other nations? What are you doing with them? You know, what about the Egyptians? What about the Philistines? What about people in countries we don't even know about yet? How are you, you know, how are they going to benefit from this? How are Aborigines in Australia at all affected by this? Because they'll never see this uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries. How, how, how? And this next line is probably one of the most profound verses in the entire book of Deuteronomy. And it just hit me this week when I was praying. I was like, this is a powerful verse, not just for Deuteronomy, but for all of these things that we want to ask God. Verse 29, 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. And this is Moses basically saying to the people, there's going to be stuff that you will never know. The secret things belong to the Lord. He's the judge of all the earth. He will do what is right, as Abraham said. We don't need to worry about other people. What's been revealed to us is for us and our children forever so that we will walk in the way. So like, you know, when, when Jesus says, hey, what does it matter? What happens to him? You come and follow me. You know, what does it matter? Who am I to judge those outside of the church? Paul will say God will judge those outside of the church. Judgment is to begin at the house of the Lord. And so my focus is going to be on those who claim to be Christians. This is such a this is such a sentiment that permeates all of our way of looking at our relationship with God because there are always going to be things that are outside of what we know. And this verse isn't saying those things don't matter. And it's not saying don't think about those things or ask about them, but it's saying, hey, they belong to God. You do what's been revealed. So when people are like, I have people all the time when I talk in discussion, they find out I'm a Christian. Well, what about people that never hear the gospel? You know, you believe they all go to hell? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know that. That's up to the Lord. I know that it's not going to be not hearing a message that sends somebody to hell. It's going to be sin that sends somebody to hell. And I know that every culture recognizes sin and knows that there are good things and bad things. And you know, So I just am going to leave all that up to God. But I'm going to follow what he said, which is take this message to the nations. Preach the gospel. Disciple people. Do those things I've called you to do. And guess what? I'm big enough to take care of all the rest. God knows the heart of every little person in the jungles of the rainforest that never heard his name. He knows the, the hairs on the head of every kid that dies in southern Sudan of starvation before he's six years old. He knows the name of every prisoner in a North Korean prison work camp, whether they're Christian or not. God knows all that. They're all created in his image. He can handle all that stuff. But what he's telling Israel, what Israel gets their chance in this section is to say, what will we do? What will we follow? Will we follow what's been revealed to us and embrace this covenant? Or will we go our own way? Next week, it gets really uplifting. Because <laughs> this week is the curses. But, um, but just know this. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 are what the entire section of Romans 9 through 11 are based on. If you're going to read Romans 9 through 11... Just know that Deuteronomy 29 and 30 are in the forefront of Paul's mind when he's writing Romans 9 through 11 about the fate of Israel, Gentiles coming to Christ, but Jews rejecting him, who will be saved, not all Israel is Israel, you know, will God reject his chosen people, all of Rome, all those questions. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is thoroughly in Paul's mind as he's addressing that. So when you're reading your Romans, chapters 9 through 11 in your New Testament studies, don't forget Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And we're going to have to pick it up next week because we are one minute over. So you guys have a great week. We'll see you next time. Plenty of food left. <laughs>